0: Malper and the t brass. I'm Carson Sestule. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And in what follows, as he does every week, Dave Cameron uses this opportunity on Fangraphs Audio to analyze all baseball. Said analysis starts with this year's playoffs, specifically the various divisional series, all four of which went to the maximum of five games. I ask Dave Cameron. Is that too much excitement? What he says might shock you, but probably only if you're easily shocked. Moving on from there, we look at Alex Rodriguez, why he's been so vilified, consider if the St. Louis Cardinals are magic, how much David Ross, that is Atlanta Braves backup catcher David Ross, might be making now that he moves to free agency, and a number of other topics that I will omit from this introduction for purposes of mystery. It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Yeah, that is the. Uh, I think we've talked about this before, but there is a point at which there's a sat- there's a saturation level, even for the most dedicated fan.
1: Yeah, the first round was awesome, but it was almost too much.
0: Well, that's interesting. I mean, it, do you think that's a product? Because we've had best of five series before, obviously. It, is there something, is there something diff, different about this year? I mean, I should say, did the new playoff format create that?
1: I don't think so. I think, like, We've never had four, game, four five-game series all go the distance before. So, like, generally those elimination games feel special because you don't get them that often, and they're, like, a little bit unique. But when they're, like, back-to-back-to-back-to-back to back to back to back and they just keep happening and they're all, like, insanely close and involve these absurd comebacks, it, not that it spoils them, but it, they, they're they less special when they happen, you know, four in 12, 24 hours. Like, it's like, yeah, we just... We just had this emotional roller coaster. I'm so tired from that one. I don't want to get on another.
0: You only want you only want so much drama. It's so much. Uh, I think
1: uh, yeah. I was like really rooting for like Thursday, like a fifteen nothing. I just wanted there to be like, okay, I'm watching this game, but I can talk to my wife on what's going
0: on. Wait, this and was Thursday. Break... What, what happened? At, which games were Thursday?
1: Uh, to be honest, I don't even totally remember. All right, no, I think no, there that... was the, the, the Reds maybe lost on Thursday with the Buster Posey Grand Slam. I think yeah, that was yeah, Thursday. Yeah. yeah. And then uh so that, you know, Wednesday and Thursday both had the four four game slates where it was, you know, baseball starts at one and ends at, you know, twelve thirty in the morning on the East Coast. Um where it's just like there was no break. There was nowhere to make dinner, there was nowhere to do anything but watch really intense riveting baseball, which you know, I mean, this is obviously a first-world problem. Like, this is kind of the definition of first-world problem. But at the same time, you know, you kind of want you, the ability to check your email or go outside occasionally or do something that isn't just staring at your screen waiting for something dramatic to happen.
0: And it did, and in many cases, actually I Now, listen, I saw uh, uh, Michael Schur, also known as Ken Tremendous, uh, personality with whom I'm sure you're familiar from Fire Joe Morgan. And, uh, yep. American culture. He tweeted out that he was disappointed that essentially the teams with the foremost compelling narratives, compelling stories, were eliminated in the divisional series. Do you uh, do you agree with that? And if, uh, yeah. if if so, does it disappoint you as well?
1: The, so the Dark Overlord guy, we were just discussing this right before we started this podcast. Is like all the teams that were interesting and that you would kind of want to make a deep run in the playoffs because they were new and different and provided a storyline that wasn't the same that we have every year, you got knocked out. (laughs) I mean, like the Nationals, obviously, uh, you know, were kind of a young, interesting team who hadn't been there before. The Strasburg shutdown narrative might've been annoying, but at least it was kind of different and uh, provided an interesting look at like, you know, how Ross Detweiler pitches and, um, you know, and that was different. The A's and Orioles obviously weren't expected to be there. Uh, you know, kind of the uh, analyzing their teams and their players was different than normal. When you look at, like, the you know the Cardinals obviously won the World Series last year. Uh, the Tigers have Verlander and Miguel Cabrera and, you know, Prince Fielder, guys we know really well. The Yankees are the Yankees. Uh, the Giants won the World Series a couple of years ago. Like, the, you know, these are sort of familiar teams where there's just not that many new and different kinds of things to say. I mean, it's, you know, the Tigers will win if Verlander pitches well. Cabrera has a bunch of home runs. Uh, the tiger, the Yankees will win if Robinson you know figures out how to hit a baseball again. Like, you know, the storylines are a little bit monotonous.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, I guess with the Cardinals, Pete Cosma and Daniel Descalso are. I mean, especially Cosmo, who was in the minors up until the end of August. I guess if there's a line there, or if there's something to learn, right? Because I think, and we've had this conversation back and forth about the benefits and the drawbacks of the playoffs. And again, for me, is that like, you know. Because I'm sensitive to drama, sensitive to an excess of drama. But I also the thing that is nice about the regular season is that you're constantly learning things, you know, because you you have 15 games a day, and you have pitchers and and, well, and hitters too getting injured, and then you have players replacing them. And so, for example, um, you might have a number of cases during the regular season where a team starting shortstop goes down, and then a guy from the minors comes up, and you're, then you're able to learn something about him, right? So like, for example, with the Brewers, and of course I live in Wisconsin, I got to see Gene Segura, if that's how you say his name, maybe that's how you say his name, but I got to see him a bunch of times. Uh, he was a player who wasn't going to be getting playing time uh, in Los Angeles, or Anaheim, however you want to think about it, with the Angels, but he comes to, to Milwaukee in the Zach Reinke trade, and you're able to see a bunch of Gene Segura, and you're learning things about Gene Segura. Now, as you note, know, with four rather familiar players, Teams in the playoffs, there are fewer cases, but P Cosmo is one of them. That's no, that's notable,
1: right? I mean, I guess you could say that exact scenario is playing out in New York right now. But who wants to learn anything about Jason Nix?
0: Hmm. Let's let's talk about Jason Nix for a second, because obviously Jay, uh, Derek Jeter is um, unfortunately, I guess, broken an ankle. He's he's a he is a fun player to mock. Or as an outsider. <laughs> as an outsider or if not him, it's not really Jeter, it's 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 it, sort right. the sort of the the
1: aura around him.
0: Right, and the fawning over him uh in yeah. which the media and New York fans will participate.
1: Right.
0: Yesterday, this is uh, last night against the Tigers, against right hander Annabal Sanchez, the Yankees decided to replace Jeter in the lineup with Jason Nix. Okay? Yeah. Now uh, I, Jason Wojciech, who, uh, has, writes for Baseball Prospectus, uh, he noted that, or, or he asked the question, he said, to what, to what degree would it be an advantage or disadvantage? This is less than, this is more than 140 characters. <laughs> he didn't say this exact thing. But you have a choice, maybe. What would happen if you moved Alex Rodriguez to shortstop, uh, especially against a right-handed pitcher? You move Al- uh, Alex Rodriguez to shortstop and then had Eric Chavez play third base, left-handed hitting. Um, Eric Chavez.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, our own Jeff Sullivan actually wrote about this as well. So if you read Fangraphs, then you would have also seen not, this topic
0: discussed not on familiar, our own pages. Not familiar with
1: it. What is this? So,
0: yeah, it what is, what is
1: well, yeah, news site making waves. Yeah, okay. Like yeah. uh, you, you should look into it.
0: I'll do it. I'll take i yeah I'll take a I'll take a look. <laughs>
1: yeah so Jeff talked about this uh Sunday. And um you know I think the from a from a Perspective of just straight playing the numbers, it's hard to not see that Rodriguez would probably be an upgrade over, over Knicks, or I guess Eric Chavez in this case would be an upgrade over Knicks, that they would be better off with Rodriguez and Chavez playing side by side than they would be sticking Jason Knicks in the lineup. Joe Girardi's argument is essentially that, you know, it's been too long, it's unfair to A-Rod to ask him to do this, but for me it almost sets up, like, Arod rod is the villain of the playoffs right now, according to the media, even though Robinson Cano hasn't gotten a hit in three months. Um, it's all Arod's fault that they're losing, and with a little bit of Nick Fisher thrown in there. This is like the perfect uh, opportunity for A-Rod to step up and be a hero, right? Like, oh, the, the fallen legend is down. I will do whatever it takes to, to help the team. All the things we say about Miguel Cabrera moving to third base, where he's lousy there, uh, but the fact that he was willing to do it uh, gets points in his favor. Like, with Jeter going down... There's an opportunity there for A-Rod to step up, play shortstop, help the team win, become a hero, get some clutch hits, uh, and you know, kind of fix the whole who do we play between A-Rod Chavez and Abanev, uh against right-handed pitching fiasco. So, to me, the Yankees were presented with a little bit of an opportunity here that I'm a, I'm a bit sad they're not taking advantage of. I understand that A-Rod hasn't played shortstop in a really long time; he'd be lousy there. But Jason Nix is a lousy hitter. So, I mean, you're either way, you're going to get a lousy hitter or a lousy fielder. And, and it's not like Jason Nix is obviously Smith either. So, um, you know, to me, you, lousy is is going to be the um, requirement on one side of the ball or the other. I, I'd be more interested in seeing how A-Rod could handle shortstop and kind of giving him a chance to redeem himself after a you know, pretty miserable first round.
0: Well, isn't it generally the case, uh, or can we assume it's the case, that when he showed up in New York, Despite the fact that it was clear that he was not going to play shortstop and Derek, Derek Jeter was going to stay there, that, that def, even defensively speaking, he was probably the better shortstop when he arrived in New York.
1: Maybe I mean it was really questionable. I mean A-Rod's always been significantly bigger than Jeter, and so you know there was a question of how well he'd be able to maintain his range, and I think that's been a legitimate question. I mean A-Rod's gotten slower, like to the point where he's no longer even a guy that you can. um say, is like a five-to-a-player. I mean, at this point, he's really just a hitter, and um, Jeter, I think, has maintained his defensive uh, value or even improved it a little bit over what he was when A-Rod got there, um, whether that's due to, you know, a constant barrage of criticism or, um, you know, whatever reason, I think Jeter's, you know, improved defensively or at least regressed less with age than we might have expected, and A-Rod's broken down and had a bunch of injuries. So, um, you know, there may have been an argument that that Rodriguez was the better defender Ten years ago, it's certainly not the case anymore.
0: Yeah, and I don't know if you know this, Cameron, but uh, Jeff Sullivan, who writes for Fangraphs, he wrote a piece called the Yankees Lose Game, Yankees Lose Captain over the weekend, uh, and he appears to address this issue of uh, who should play shortstop in Derek Jeter's absence. Might, might check yeah. it out. Consider checking uh, I, it out.
1: I, I will consider reading the article that I told him to
0: write. Oh, right. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. Sounds yeah. good. Um, here's a question with regard to Alex Rodriguez, and I'm asking you, uh, to evaluate probably less his performance and more, uh, the hearts and minds of the, the people, which is, um, and, and you posted as we were, uh, entering the playoffs, I guess, or, um, you know, maybe as part, part way through the, through the LDS, uh, in the AL, Derek Jeter and Alex Rodriguez have been, I think similar in the playoffs with, and, and probably A-Rod has been a little bit better. Is that true?
1: Yeah, I mean if you just look at their postseason career performances side by side, A Rod's hit a little bit better in October than Jeter
0: has. Okay. Uh furthermore, this postseason, Alex Rodriguez has been poor. So has Robinson Cadeau, uh, and so has Curtis Granderson.
1: That's also and the Nick case?
0: Yeah. And, and, I mean, and really
1: pretty pretty much every Yankee besides Raul Lobanyz has been terrible.
0: Okay. And yet, in both cases, um, uh, a-, A rod is villainized or vilified, or both. Um, these other players, not so much. What is it about about Alex Rodriguez, do you think, that um, so attracts the uh, the ire of uh, fans and media alike?
1: Well, uh, so I think you know we can't ignore the fact that salary plays. A large part in this. If you make a lot of money and you fail, you get more crap than if you make a little bit of money and you fail. And A-Rod makes more than anyone else in baseball. He's making $30 million a year at this point in his career. Uh, you know, he's got $115 million left in his contract. It's the same reason why sabermetric people throw a lot of scorn at Ryan Howard. Ryan Howard is a better player than, say, Casey Kochman, but Casey Kochman didn't find a $125 million contract extension. So, you know, I think the... Um, the understanding of expectations that come along with a salary like A-Rod's, um, put a burden on him that doesn't get put on a Fisher or a Granderson or even a Robinson Cano. Um and then there's also just the, uh, pre-existing mindset of what A-Rod is, you know. So, like, the post that I put up deals with A-Rod's career totals, but those career totals are essentially an amalgamation of a bunch of struggles and one amazing season. In 2009, he essentially, you know, Carried the Yankees on their back as much as one player can carry a player and was outstanding throughout the entire playoffs. Prior to 2009, he hadn't been very good. And so, um, you know, there was already this idea planted early in his career that A-Rod is bad in the postseason. And for people who kind of think binarily and say, you know, he had four good or four bad postseasons and one good postseason, and they don't necessarily weight the fact that his really good postseason was both longer and more amazing than his bad ones. Um, you know, so they don't necessarily look at the total average. They're just going to see this as a continuation of a trend where A Rod usually sucks in October except for that one time he did.
0: You, you know, you made that point about Ryan Howard. I just want to uh, pursue that a little bit. Uh, you noted that, that a lot of people who sort of um, are careful about or attentive to um, the numbers, um, you know, they there is a general, there's a, there's a sort of. A, a mockery there occasionally of the Ryan Howard contract, and uh, the fact that he's probably overpaid, or he certainly is overpaid, certainly relative to what he's done, and the fact that uh, what I think this year he just started, uh, he started in the first year, this season, yes, of uh, contract extension that hasn't signed through what 2016, 2017.
1: Yeah, he signed a five-year contract extension that kicked in uh, at the beginning of this year. That pays him 125 million dollars in total.
0: Right, and at the beginning of this year, he wasn't even playing because uh, right he had what you right could now? argue
1: at the end of the year, he wasn't really playing either. He was yeah. he was
0: pretty terrible. So, so the thing is, though, generally speaking, uh, Ryan Howard um, does not is, does not receive the same sort of attention from the media and maybe um, the the average fan the sort of negative attention, certainly, that Alex Rodriguez does. Whereas I think Alex Rodriguez, like, with regard to the sabermetric crowd, um, or people who, you know, have uh, certainly sabermetric sympathies, there's not as much division there as 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 there is for Ryan Howard. Uh, and yet, in in the popular mind, Alex Rodriguez is a failure. I mean, do you think – it seems that on the one hand, people understand why Ryan Howard was paid, but they can't why see why Alex Rodriguez was overpaid.
1: I mean, to me, these guys are the same – stories just from different crowds, right? So like Arod is the guy that you absolutely hate if you buy into clutch and if you think that baseball players make too much money um and you don't like uh people's personalities as described to you through the media. So Arod's done a bunch of unlikable things. He's probably an unlikable person. <laughs> you know, based on history, uh and the things that come out about him, the, you know, centaur on the ceiling. Like he's just done a lot of things that seem lame, and like a guy you wouldn't want to hang out with, mm-hmm. and uh, so I think if you're into personality and clutch hitting uh, and those kinds of media old school narratives, then A-Rod is your poster boy for horrible contracts if you're into on-base percentage and war then Ryan Howard is your poster boy for these things and in both cases um, I think the they've become essentially the litmus test for the kind of things you believe so A-Rod is is everything that's wrong with that, the mindset that the old school doesn't like. Uh, he's a bad teammate, he's bad for chemistry, he only cares about himself, he's all about the money, he doesn't want to win. Uh, you know, all those ideas. Ryan Howard is everything that's wrong with the new school's line of thinking. He doesn't get on base, he strikes out too much, his defense is terrible, he's the worst base runner ever, he's all about RBIs, RBIs are useless. Uh, it's really the same criticism, just with a different value system.
0: Okay, alright. I accept that. I think you you have uh, decidedly helped me there. I want to talk about uh, briefly the uh, the Cardinals and what they've done. And um, over the weekend, I wrote a piece uh, that was a uh, an autopsy. Uh, um, after reading, uh, I learned about autopsies uh, after reading on Wikipedia for five minutes about them. Did uh, uh, autopsy on the um, on the Nationals or deciding, I guess, what the cause of death of the Nationals was. One of the, the cases is that maybe it was homicide in the sense that they were murdered by the Cardinals, who <laughs> appear to have, or at least uh, have had over the last what like year essentially, a capacity in the playoffs to to make uh, to come from behind. Um, they did an excellent thing. They did a pretty excellent thing for them, not for Nationals fans uh, or the Nationals players. They came. Uh, they scored four runs at the top of the ninth. Um, in game five um, deciding game against drew store who had a pretty excellent season Um, and uh, really you know apart from a couple pitches didn't pitch horribly in that particular inning is there any reason to believe uh i can i can guess your answer but is there any reason to believe that the cardinals are somehow particularly well suited uh to postseason success the way they're constructed now uh
1: i'll say yes actually i think like Okay. You know, we might not know exactly what the magic key to winning in October is, and it's probably mostly random, Uh you know, small sample variance. Any team can beat any other team on any given day. But the St. Louis Cardinals can really hit the baseball. I think that more than anything else, this is what they're good at, is just scoring the crap out of good pitching. And, you know, when you're down by four or five runs, it helps when every person in your lineup can hit the ball over the wall. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I think with the Cardinals, they play essentially in their own or they create their own higher run environment where, you know, overcoming a three- or four-run deficit isn't as difficult as it would be for another team because they're so good at um, scoring runs up and down their lineup. It's not that their offense is concentrated in just one guy, but they have, like, seven or eight legitimately good hitters. I mean, eight might be a stretch. They have six or seven legitimately good hitters. Um, And, you know, I think at any point in any inning, they're going to have guys coming up and hit the ball over the wall. And I think... If you are that kind of team, a rally or a significant comeback is easier to sustain. than if you're one of these guys who essentially have to wait for Miguel Cabrera or a fielder to come up in order to, you know, to create a to create a rally because your offense is consolidated in two or three players.
0: So, do you, I mean, do you think at that point, the, the way that the Nationals lost, uh, I mean, what was the way to prevent that, or was it just a matter of trying to hold off uh, an Angels or a, I should say a Cardinals offense? That is, that is probably better than, than, than we know, or we, th- we think of, given the teams, uh, the way that they got into the playoffs this year.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we knew the Cardinals offense was good, um, but I think they're probably even better than their, their season line might show. I mean, I think they've got some, uh, guys who, you know, missed decent amounts of time, uh, with injuries, who when they're healthy, and they're basically healthy right now, with Carlos Beltran and David Frietz and, uh, Alan Craig all in the line at the same time, they're, they're pretty monstrous offensively. And so I think, you know, what could Drew Storin have done differently besides throw strikes? I mean, the, the key to that was the two walks, right? Like, um, when you go into the ninth inning with a, with a two-run lead, walks are pretty harmful. Uh it, You know, more harmful than they usually are because the, really the goal is to keep the tying run from coming to the plate. Uh, especially, you know, keep the tying run off base. Keep the tying run from coming to the plate. Like, the walks to Molina and Freese, uh, I'm not going to say they weren't... They're unacceptable because you don't want to just throw a meatball down the middle that goes over the fence. That's worse than a walk, but you need to throw strikes in that situation. And Drew Storing didn't do it. And so, um, you know, I think what we saw, especially with that Molina at bat was a really, uh, I mean, a fantastic at bat from a guy who wasn't a very good hitter even a couple of years ago, um, fouling off close pitches, taking some really close pitches, uh, working his way on base against a tough right hander, getting himself into a situation where, um, you know, he represented a, a, a critical run in a, in a, situation where the Cardinals needed base runners. Um, you know, I think Storin just needed to kind of make the Cardinals beat him, and uh, he didn't do that. He, he kind of beat himself.
0: At the site this week, uh, well, today we started it. At the site this week, though, and probably into next week, um, we'll be doing contract crowdsourcing, something we've done uh, the last couple of years at, the, at FanGraphs. Uh, today we start with catchers. And uh, in constructing the the forms, uh, you know, the, the crowdsourcing forms for the catchers, one of the players that uh I included was David Ross. Uh, he's one of the five catchers we have here. He's played now uh, about uh, four or five years as the the backup to Brian McCann in Atlanta. I was looking over his numbers, and for those same four or five years, he's had between 100 and 200 plate appearances every season. Okay, and he's never had below. He's never been worth below a win above replacement um, essentially he's averaging m- more or less a win for every hundred plate appearances he's taken, which is a good rate. I mean if you extrapolate that over five hundred six hundred plate appearances, which of course uh, is not necessarily the most reasonable thing to do, but I'm saying you know that's a five or six win pace uh, over the course of a full season for a catcher uh, David rice is or sorry David Ross is entering the free agent market. Um, I don't necessarily know what's going to happen. That's, that's not my area of expertise. Uh, but I'm curious though: A, do people know that David Ross is this good? And and B, you know, would he ever be paid for what he's done?
1: Uh, I think the answer is that David Ross is the best backup catcher in baseball, and that's all he's ever going to be. I think that you know he's been selectively used to the maximum benefit of his platoon splits, where he really can just destroy opposite hand hitters, and that's. Basically, the only time he plays. I mean, they, they use him as much as possible, uh, when he has the platoon advantage, um, which obviously inflates his numbers. And if you put him in an everyday role, he wouldn't get that opportunity. So, um, you know, it's one of those instances where obviously the rate stats are affected by the way he's used. Um, but I think there's also concerns about his health and just about how well he'd hold up as an everyday catcher. And, you know, I think this is one of those situations where you see a guy in his, you know, mid to late thirties and you're, you're, um, legitimately concerned with whether this guy can catch on a regular basis and you know catching it takes a physical toll um it's not like playing you know the outfield where you can just be like well as long as you don't run into the wall or break something you should be able to play uh, i think there's a legitimate concern that ross wouldn't be able to hold up under the kind of workload so my guess is he's going to get paid like a backup catcher um and you know i think someone in the comments thread said that they estimated 14 million over two years i I can't see anything more than, like, 3 or $4 million for one year, honestly. Um, I think Ross will be rewarded by the Braves for what he is and his, his insurance policy for Brian McCann. Uh, but I don't think anybody's going to look at David Ross and say, like, yep, I want to make him my starting catcher
0: next year. Now, you, you note that he's probably the best backup catcher in baseball. Is he sort of the ideal, right, where he's got – I think he has enough in the way of catch and throw skills. Maybe he's even above average. I really don't know. But I know that he's – at least I suspect he's not very below average. Um, and also a right-handed batter. Um, You have him on the the weak side of that platoon so that his spots, uh, when he's coming up, are going to make more sense. And then you have a a left-handed batter who's going to get the majority of the platoon advantages. I mean, is that the sort of – is that the ideal construction at the catcher spot?
1: Yeah, I I think the ideal is definitely to have a good left-handed hitting catcher with a backup who's right-handed so you can kind of give them off days based on the platoon advantage rather than just this – you know, play three days, rest a day kind of thing. Um, But there aren't that many good left-handed hit catchers in baseball. (laughs) That's a little bit of the problem is in order to have this ideal platoon, you first need to have the left-handed starter, and that's the harder thing to get. So Ross is the the ideal for a team with Brian McCann or a Joe Maurer or, you know, one of these good left-handed bats. He's not necessarily the ideal if you have Buster Posey.
0: Well, I guess if you have Buster Posey, you could just have whoever, right? Because he's Buster Posey. Or, I mean, at that point, do you want a left-handed bat?
1: I mean, I think the ideal, if you have a guy like Posey or a code right-handed hitting catcher, even a Matt Wieters who's a switch hitter, but he's better against left-handers, um, Ross is almost a little bit wasted because you want Posey, who has huge between splits as well, in the lineup against every left-hander. And you also want Ross in the lineup against every left-hander. So then you're in a situation where either Posey is playing first base uh, or, you know, in the American League of DH in one of the two, which means you need to carry a third catcher because you've got your second catcher in the DH spot. Um, I think, you know, if you have one of these right handed hitting starting catchers, um, even a Kelly Schobach, if you wanted to have like a, you know, a lower end version of this guy, um, you know, if this kind of player is your starter, Ross is a bit of, there's some diminishing returns with having David Ross as your backup catcher, and you might be better off, honestly, with a, a weaker left handed bat who allowed you to play the two a little better.
0: Hey. Probably the reason there are so few great left-handed hitting catchers is because uh, no catcher is ever going to throw from the left side. Correct. Epiphany. That's an epiphany, (laughs) Dave Cameron. That's (laughs) what that looks like. This is something you just thought of? Yeah. I don't think about those things very often. I let you do that.
1: Okay. Well, this also actually applies to the other infield positions, not including first base, right, is like the only left-handed hitting third baseman shortstops are second base like you'll ever see are the ones who throw right-handed because of the alignment of the diamond. You don't have left-handed throwers at those positions. So in order to be any kind of non-first base infielder um, you, and be a left-handed hitter, you have to throw right-handed. There's not a ton of those guys, which is why, you know, for the most part, your left-handed hitters play first base in the outfield.
0: Wow, oh, that is great stuff. Look at that. That's information. The uh, We'll be doing those those uh, that crowdsourcing. What, what do we do with this data? Uh, What's the value of the data? I mean, do we view the outcomes of this crowdsourcing project? Do we view this as gospel? Uh, Is it more just a guideline? Are we looking at the absolute numbers or maybe the numbers relative to each other so that we can adjust them accordingly?
1: We actually take this data and sell it to general managers, and this is how they uh, decide what contracts to offer players. It's okay. a very lucrative yeah. uh, income stream for Fangraphs. Yeah, uh,
0: that's right. Well, I should note that that's, why, that's how you got all those golden teeth, where you have that grill yeah. on top of your teeth, uh, <laughs> and that was mostly paid for, I think, by uh, proceeds from that.
1: Yeah, I, I think that they should definitely be taken as gospel. Everything the Fangraphs crowd is uh, says should be... Um, handed down on stone tablets. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, in general, we look at these contract crowdsourcing things, they've actually been pretty decent over the, the years. I think there's some contracts that no one saw coming where either the market exploded or one team just valued a player way more than anyone else did. Um, or it seems like there are probably some biases in Fangraph's readers towards certain types of players where they're going to miss um, a guy for one reason or another because he's not a Fangraph's type of player. Um but I think overall, like there are actually pretty decent estimates of uh, of what a player is going to find for. And overall, I think it's it's useful to have this kind of information to go in and set expectations and say, like you know, it we can look at it and think that the crowd believes that teams are going to spend five, six million dollars per win, and they see this guy as a you know three or four win player, um, or you know, in in some cases uh, maybe they'll identify a guy who they think that teams are going to spend a lot of money on who doesn't deserve it. So, you know, I think that there's value in in this data, even if it's not perfect.
0: Man, I mean, isn't that the way? That's life, isn't it? Uh, It's not always going to be perfect, is it, Dave Cameron?
1: Life is rarely perfect. But, you know, occasionally it is on Mondays when we record a podcast.
0: Whoa, yes, yes, life perfected is what this is frequently referred to as. I don't know, Uh, that's all I have for right now. How does that sound, how does it look to you?
1: Uh, I am happy to be done.
0: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Kind words always, Dave Cameron. But, yeah. uh, well, thanks for thanks for making your weekly appearance. Uh,
1: I don't think I have a choice, but you're welcome. Mm, you don't really.
0: Be. That's Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. So I'm Carson Sestouli. Uh, this has been an episode of Fangraphs Audio in which Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball.